1: Difficult to keep the line between
2: the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and
1: take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
0: Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson. Here again with Genevieve koski Keith Pope's, and Scott Tobias is currently on vacation, but we'll be back soon you <laughs> In the first half of this conversation, we talked about how Jim Henson's 1982 movie, The Dark Crystal, connected with us on an intellectual basis, because we love so much about the visible hard work that went into the production, but how it left us a little cold emotionally. That's a criticism we've seen coming from other critics with Laika Studios' Kubo and the Two Strings, which has a similar deep personal investment from the filmmakers, and plenty of similarly fun behind-the-scenes stories, but still has a protagonist who can be a little too basic and familiar, and a little difficult to love. Laika CEO Travis Knight says all the right things about what the company wants to do with its stories, how its goal is to make movies that matter, how its creators consciously think through the themes of the stories they're telling. And I personally go into every Like a Movie wanting to love it in order to respect the craft and hard work that go into everything the studio does. It's like the kind of fandom that animation fans bring to Pixar movies, but that level of high expectations can inevitably bring a little disappointment along with it. But is Kubo and the Two Strings disappointing? The movie tells the story of a young boy named Kubo who lost an eye and nearly lost his life when he was a baby. His mother fought to save him, but came away scarred and mentally damaged. So when Kubo has to set out to reclaim his birthright, he has to leave his mother behind and travel with two new companions, a cranky, fierce monkey called Monkey and a four-armed samurai named Beetle. Together they go on a quest, find some magical items, and fight three fiendish creatures from Kubo's past. We'll be right back with that after this.
2: My name is Kubo. I look after my mother mostly. What was
0: father like? He was just like you. Strong. And so handsome. (laughs) Mother. (laughs) I use magic to tell stories.
2: If you must blink, (gasps) do it now. About epic battles, warriors,
0: monsters. (laughs) But I had no idea my stories were actually true. (laughs) Kubo. We've
2: been looking for you
0: for so long. Father! Kubo, you must find your father's armor. It's your only chance. Mother! Kubo! Everything Genevieve said in that last segment about appreciating the craft without emotionally connecting with the film also covers how I reacted to Kubo and the two strings. But I understand that other people had very different reactions. Keith?
1: I don't understand not being emotionally moved by this film. I was really moved by this film. I, I um to talk about why is kind of reveal more of the plot than we probably should, you know, for no, people let's who talk haven't about seen it. Let's talk about the plot. Okay, yeah. well, it's ultimately a story about a boy who has lost his parents and a boy, but how the people that we lose stay with us. The, hence the two strings of, of the title, which turn out to be stand-ins for the parents he's lost. And I found that really affecting and I found while Kubo may not be The most complicated protagonist. He worked for me. I mean, he's a tough little kid. He's lost an eye. He doesn't. He never had a father. He (laughs) loses his mother early on. I mean, do you do you expect? uh, You know, the range of emotions might be a little limited when you live that way. But um, this movie had me from the beginning. It is gorgeous looking, but also I think it has a really interesting approach where. It's a film about storytelling in many ways, and, and Kubo is a storyteller. And and if I wasn't already into this movie, the very early scene where Kubo brings his origami creations to life with music, and it's sort of... Here we have this very handmade animation. Um, obviously, it's a mix of different techniques, but there's, there's, there's a handmade craftsmanship. It looks like a physical object. And you have this character creating these creations within the creation uh, in a film that kind of is interesting as to, as to why we tell the stories we tell and how, how they affect us. I, this movie worked for me. It worked for me on a couple of different levels. And, and uh, I, it's one of the best things I've seen this year. Genevieve, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're going to agree with me, right?
2: <laughs> I wish I could agree with you more strongly than I do, which is sort of when you map out and sort of diagram all the things this movie is doing on a symbolic level uh, and, you know, talking about, storytelling and the power of that. Like that all sounds really great and it for the most part plays out pretty well. I I do have kind of some problems with the ending, but we can get into that in a little later. But it really does come down to Kubo for me in that everything you mention about, you know, him being this you know, scrabby kid who loses his parents, you don't feel that loss. You don't feel that loss, I think, when you need to feel that loss, which is when Kubo is first ripped away from his mother and wakens in this barren wasteland, you know, with monkey. You know, at that moment, we're embarking on the hero's journey. And like, typically, the hero's journey has the hero rejecting that journey at at the beginning. And we don't really have that from Kubo. There's no like, mourning or sense of loss or wanting to flee. It's just like, okay, here I go on my quest. And I think that's what I mean about the characterization being a little... Uh, simplistic and kind of taking away from the narrative.
1: I think there are other moments too, where in, in some ways it is it is episodic and it, it's like here we are at this point now, here at this point now. And I now mean, it's, he it's has climax, three pieces
2: of armor sure. he needs to collect. You know, I mean, it is kind of that that it's video a little video. Game. Yeah,
1: it's yeah. almost video gamey. Yeah. yeah, or folkloric. I mean, it's yeah. not necessarily right. You know, I mean,
2: that's what I mean when I, It's like a very standard hero's journey. Yeah,
1: yeah, but I, I don't know. It it just it just worked for me. I hear what you're saying, but it doesn't really necessarily square mm-hmm. with me experience of watching the film. Right,
2: and, and I mean and I don't want to undersell it. like I did have a great time watching this film. I was awed by the visuals and the story wasn't bad or off-putting in a way that like I couldn't approach the movie on its own terms and enjoy the ride, but at the end I didn't feel affected or touched by it. I just felt impressed by it, which ties back to what we were saying about the dark crystal. Hmm. That's a really interesting point you make
0: about both the character here and Jen and the Dark Crystal. We kind of touched on that. Neither one of them refused the call to action, and that's supposed to be a part of the hero's journey. And I have such mixed feelings about that because for me – one of the dullest parts of any Hero's Journey story is the part where the, the character says, no, I don't want to. I right. don't want to be the Messiah. I don't want to be the Chosen One. I don't want to fight Voldemort. I don't want to be the only person who can operate the giant mecca and fend off the evil aliens from beyond space and time. I don't want to. And part of the reason that's never appealing is because these are such fulfillment stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the audience is supposed to identify with the character and want to go be the Chosen One and do awesome things. And having the Chosen One go, I don't want to, you kind of get a feeling of, yes, you want to get off your duff. Come on, go do it.
1: I think also we shouldn't ding a film for not adhering to this model because we have, you know, Joseph Campbell does his research, you know, reads every myth ever, ever, ever written down. I uh, concludes this is how all heroes journeys uh, must go. George Lucas takes his heart. And now every movie just takes it as the blueprint, and where's you know there's variations on on that. We don't, not everything has to follow go beat for beat. Although the fact that you are finding it unsatisfying that we're missing some beats suggests maybe maybe I am uh, talking out of my head. But hat. I
0: don't think she's saying like it doesn't hit the checkbox, so it's a, a bad film. She's <laughs> saying he doesn't have the emotional complexity. He doesn't have like a stage where, where he seems like weak or hurt or harmed where you have that kind of vulnerability that often lets you connect emotionally with a character. And what I'm saying is I usually hate that beat, but now I find it interesting that I, I think you're right. I think we're, we're maybe missing something there in the, the charge straightforward to
2: okay. Quest time. Yeah. I mean, there there's gotta be a happy middle ground between like endless whinging about, I don't want to, and just like, Oh, okay okay, whatever you say, off we go on my quest. when the latter is kind of what I was feeling more in Kubo and that I, I don't satisfactorily get the drive from Kubo there. It comes kind of a little bit later, but it does feel a little arbitrary, the beginning of this quest, because there isn't that push and pull between what you have to do and what you want to do in that moment.
0: Which is a very, very Japanese story thing. The push and pull between what you personally want and your duty is like fundamental to so many Japanese stories, so much both modern Japanese stories and folkloric Japanese stories. And uh, to have it not exist here uh, makes it, I don't know,
2: just makes it feel a little underwhelming.
1: Maybe he wants not to have uh, his mom die. Uh, But no, I I, I get what you're saying.
2: Okay, do we need to get into the ending and how, you know, this whole movie is about storytelling and how much of what is happening is quote unquote real how much is a story how much is metaphorical Mm. you know there's it kind of goes back to what i was saying about how like this is also interesting when you diagram it out but in the moment it doesn't come together in a satisfactory way for me especially the moon king and losing his memories and being fed a story and then there's kind of this suggestion at the end well i don't know how did how did you guys read the end because I, I think it's kind of ambiguous.
1: I've read this the story as being you know literally true within the world of the film. Um, everything that happens to Kubo is is supposed to have actually have happened to Kubo, unless I am sorely misreading this film. What, what, am I, I mean,
2: I that,
0: you're asking about the grandfather. Yes. and what happens to the grandfather? Right. I mean, I think the the metaphor that they're going for there, the idea that they're going for there, is the stories make the world, and the stories that you tell about yourself define you, which makes it sort of a weird idea when they decide to tell the grandfather a story that defines him and suddenly they kind of overrule his own self-definition with with their idea of who he should be and and erase him. I mean there's it's, there's so much going on here conceptually that I'm with you. I I just I find like really heady and interesting on a conceptual level but then like the actual execution of it there's just there's something some spark for me that's just not quite there. I
1: found that really humane though, the idea that, that this person could be could be redeemed and like he could he could actually get part of this family back i mean you know when you think about it it is erasing everything that the moon king was before but but you also get a glimpse of this sort of person he could have been in that one dream and or fantasy sequence where he talks to to his grandfather uh who is not at that point in the, in this in this sequence has not been corrupted by his moon king ambitions i guess is the way to put it i don't know i, I felt the, the idea of finding a truer, better version of, of that character, I don't know, I, I, that stuck with me. I, I, I like that.
2: Is there a reading of this story where this is all a story that a orphan child who lives with his mean grandpa is telling himself to cope? Because that's that's kind of what I, I felt like the end was like maybe edging up to without really committing to like the full ambiguity.
1: I think I, think I had to stretch to go full sucker punch <laughs> with this one. That, that is not, there's not a lot to, to suggest I was going to say St.
2: Elsewhere, but you yeah. Know, I was you, thinking yeah. of that too. Pick your reference.
1: Uh, no, I, I, I reject this reading of that. That reading of this film, uh, well,
2: well, that's fine because I don't think that reading really works either. But I, I, for a second, I thought
0: you were going to say the reading where all of this is a story that a little boy trying to earn money in the marketplace is telling with origami. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much story within a story, and story above a story, and story below a story. Like it's it's all stories
2: all the way down. <laughs> exactly, and like the this movie just hits the the story things of heart and the power of storytelling. But I feel like it doesn't really cohere around a central idea other than like stories are great we like stories here's a story about stories you know and i, I feel like th- there needed to be maybe a little more nuance to the the central argument of this story which is a, a weird thing to say about a film but
0: yeah and once again i mean one of the things i most hate about children's movies is when they have like the one memo that you're supposed to get you know <laughs> the one moral where they're they're like okay setup, up repeat of setup third repeat right. of setup in case you're stupid or four <laughs> 4 years old Payoff. Right. All right. Did
2: everybody get the moral? And yet, at the same the same time, oh, it, it's just. So honestly, I think what we've established is that my taste in children's movies is just super basic. Like,
0: <laughs> no, no I, I I I worry sometimes that we've just we've been fed the same patterns over and over, and particularly that pattern of like call and response, set up and payoff, mm-hmm. um, three points that you have to hit. You know, start move from point A to point B to point C. We've gotten so much of that that it becomes hard to appreciate a story that falls outside this.
1: And here here we have a movie that does it and we're rejecting it because of that. We're
0: not Mm -hmm. rejecting Mm -hmm. it. We're honestly... We're questioning it. We're complaining about our, our own inability to connect with it and wondering what's there because once again... I went in this movie wanting this to be my new favorite movie. Sure. Mm, me too. And high expectations are always a problem, but I was such a receptive audience for what this movie was laying down. This movie has so many of my favorite things. I love fairy tales. I love Japanese stories. I love Heroes Quest stories. Monkeys. I love talking animal <laughs> stories. I I love, love puppets. I love puppets. <laughs> I love animation. I love stories that value storytelling. Like I love heady metaphors. I love spooky women who fly and, and do horrible things all of these things like in one big pile it should be just like the ultimate dessert but instead it's like here's 50 scoops of ice cream and it all mm. kind of ends up tasting like the same ice cream to me hmm.
1: i don't know Work worked for me uh i, I want to say. i
0: want to be where you are yeah, keith yeah. i want to have that feeling I want to have your passion. And I mean, that goes for any movie that, uh, like I say, I like last time when we talked about Pete's dragon and everybody at the table was like, we loved this movie. And I was like, meh, I would much rather be in the, I love this movie seat. Yeah. And when I love a movie with that kind of passion, it's a very satisfying
1: feeling. You're often in the "meh" seat. though. I- Often uh,
0: in the must or the I actively dislike that, but it makes it all the more powerful when you know when I really love a movie yeah so I, I'm just kind of trying to interrogate why I didn't connect with this given that it's such a pile of things I should love
1: and just, we haven't even really touched on just how gorgeous this movie is I mean just, just the, the colors really popped it. you know the animation we talked about being an achievement but it's extremely expressive like the like monkey what, 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 a, what a great character a <laughs> monkey is you know and and um, the giant Puppet, they fight. I, mean, I could watch an hour of that. The 3Dness. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm a 3D skeptic often, but this is a movie that should be seen in 3D. It is sort of like other like i things. It's made to be seen in 3D, in more ways than one.
0: Yeah, much like with I'm going to say Pixar again. Any movie that I walk into uh, that's a Pixar movie that I expect to love and don't quite love, I think there's a tendency to kind of focus on why don't I love this and and kind of forget all of this stuff that like, well, oh, it's Pixar. So of course it's beautifully animated and impeccably paced and, uh, and perfectly timed and has fantastic music and visuals and like whatever. And we, yes, we're probably guilty of that. That's why at the end of the dark crystal discussion, I wanted to loop back to what we liked. Because it seemed like we were focusing on what didn't we love about this movie that we all feel good about. This is an incredibly gorgeous movie.
2: Yeah, I don't think anyone is arguing with the visuals of this movie. I've I've not seen a a single person, you know, apply the meh criticism to, to the way this movie looks. And if anything, I think the issues that we're talking about with character and story are kind of a a barrier to appreciating those as much as they should be appreciated.
0: Well, that plays nicely into your topic, Genevieve. You were going to kind of talk about how both of these stories use puppets, and it really comes down to, in in both of these stories, the design and and what they do. You want to talk about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously, these movies look very different, but they are both at heart utilizing puppets to a a large degree, but in very different ways. And the ways in which each film uses puppets has a drastic effect on the final look of the film. Much of this boils down to the simple fact that The Dark Crystal uses live-action puppeteering, where Kubo uses stop-motion animation to bring its puppets to life. I think the style of puppetry that we see in The Dark Crystal is what most people envision when you talk about puppeteering, particularly Jim Henson's style thereof. But Kubo certainly nods to that lineage in its design of its puppets, particularly the 18-foot skeleton uh, that you mentioned and the sword-finding sequence. But ultimately, each approach kind of has its own specific vibe, born of the relative strengths and weaknesses of each approach. The live-action puppeteering is more immediate, with a greater sense of watching a performance in action, where the animation allows for more dynamism and variety, but with more of a formal remove. Does either approach kind of appeal to you guys more than the other, or do you find one more intriguing from a either intellectual or emotional standpoint?
0: I mean, the the stuff that Leica does behind the scenes is so magical to me. And I mean, going to the studio and and seeing the the physical objects that were used in the movie, it was so hard to make the intellectual leap from this little physical thing that I can move around with my hands. Is that? person talking and and dancing and running and fighting on screen. It's amazing how big that gulf is. I don't find as much of a gulf with Henson style puppets. I find it fascinating when you watch behind the scenes kind of stuff that you can watch a puppeteer like put a a Kermit or Grover or Oscar the Grouch on their hand and you can see it come to life. Like they take it off and it's a fuzzy sleeve with dead eyes and they put it on and it's not a different physical object in a person's hand, but it transforms. I think that's a really neat effect. But watching the the functional equivalent happen with stop motion, so much more work has to go into it, so much more time and attention and focus, especially just the way Leica does it. You know, they do it so smoothly and with such attention to detail. There is a, a fabulous sequence at the very end of the box, Trolls, where you actually get to watch Travis Knight animating... In real time. Like, there's just sort of the ghostly flicker of him moving the characters around at 24 frames they, per they second. They do that at the end
2: of Kubo, too, don't they? They do that yeah. at the end of each one of the right. movies. That's what I thought, yeah. Okay.
0: The sequences are getting like longer and longer mm-hmm. as they go. But the one at the box trolls particularly impressed to me because the puppets are, are talking to each other. And they're specifically talking about how they feel like they're being manipulated by invisible hands. Oh, that's right. It's all yeah. very meta. But it's neat to me because it's actually Travis Knight doing it. And even watching him move the things, they move so smoothly that they seem to be moving independently from him. So stop motion, like the visual aesthetics of stop motion, don't always appeal to me. But the work that goes into it seems way more magical to me than puppeting.
1: I think it's just a matter of creating the illusion of soulfulness, no matter which form which you're using. I think both are pretty successful. I think Dark Crystal's Gelflames are the least successful of uh, the creations in the two films we talked about, but I actually find the other characters which have a greater range of expressiveness quite recognizably you know animated soulful creations but I also find that with with the stop motion in Laika as, as well, I feel like kuba is a soulful creation, but also monkey is the one that I always come back to this is very angry but concerned short tempered monkey, and you know once once it 's revealed who she is you know all, all the more so. Uh, It felt like a real living character to me. So I think think they both work on their own terms.
2: It it was interesting listening to you just now, Tasha, talking about that uh, segment at the end of the box troll and, and Knight kind of individually animating this. Because when I was thinking of this topic and what I was going to say about it, I was thinking of puppetry as performance, as being kind of solely the purview of the Dark Crystal style of puppetry, where you have someone actually, their physical form inside the puppet in some way or another, whereas the puppets in the stop motion approach are more of a tool But it is, I think, based on what you just pointed out there, kind of possible to read that as just a very drawn out performance uh, using the the same tool, but uh, just a different style of capturing it. I think there's also kind of a connection to be made there in that... Most of the time in the Dark Crystal, the uh, voice performers are not also the puppet performers, just the way that Kubo has voice performances that are obviously separate from the animation itself. So, yeah, there's just kind of an interesting split there in terms of, of the performance of the puppetry.
0: Yeah, that's certainly how Laika thinks of it. I One of the things I learned above, behind the scenes that I thought was really fascinating is that they they never have more than one animator working on a scene. Um they will occasionally if they've got multiple puppets within a scene in a way that they're going to have to be composited like if there's a focus issue if one character is extreme foreground and one's extreme background and you wouldn't actually be able to capture them both with a camera and have them both be in focus they'll have those uh, characters animated separately and composited it in but in a sequence where you've got several characters standing and moving together you don't have like a Kubo animator and a monkey animator and a beetle animator mm-hmm. you have one person doing that entire scene And sometimes, like in the Box Trolls, there's a scene that takes place at a fancy uh, gala where a bunch of characters are waltzing. That was one animator's job for 18 months. That is (laughs) what that animator did on that film. And that's how they work because it is performance-based. It's performance-based for the animator. It's 27 animators on Kubo. (laughs) total. I mean, a a two-and-a-half-year process, each animator producing about three seconds a week, but they still believe so much that... A single animator is doing a, an extended performance. That that's that's just how
2: they handle scheduling.
0: That's interesting. It's crazy. Yeah.
2: I was just I was sitting here kind of giggling to myself, remembering the classic Parks and Rec gag of Adam Scott's character taking up stop motion animation <laughs> and making it about <laughs> about three seconds into his film.
0: It's really rough. It involves an incredible amount of work, and let me tell you, having been there, it involves an incredible amount of incredible amount of work in very very hot. Conditions in very isolated conditions where you're by yourself in the equivalent of like a room made out of a tent for eighteen months. Sounds positively villainous. Are you are you trying to uh, create the world's I, I would most never create segue? such an awkward segue. Could you could you possibly try to create that segue more slowly, maybe over the course of uh, about twenty four frames per second? <laughs> Okay, if not, I'm going to take up my topic, which is, in fact, villains. Thank you, Genevieve. You're welcome. (laughs) That transition was evil. (laughs) What struck me about the villains in both Kubo and The Dark Crystal, and Keith, I think you touched on this a little bit, is that it's a very Miyazaki approach to villainy in both cases. You have a... A group of, of creatures that are inherently evil, that are evil in their nature, and the camera pushes up on them just to capture how twisted and, and dark and horrific they are. But in the end, they're just kind of the rejected half of these creatures that tried to cast off their darkness from them and realized that they, they weren't really people without that half of their personality. In Kubo, you have this villainous creature that wants to like consume Kubo. He wants to claim his other eye. He wants to uh, recreate uncreate him
1: uh, tell him a new story about himself and that's that's pretty bad i mean he's, we're talking about him claiming his other eye he's already got <laughs> one of them <laughs> a bad dude
0: it's a, he's a scary when he's also like a a scary flying dragon creature mm-hmm. i mean both of these sets of villains are are very frightening you know but in the end they don't kill him they don't stab him to death they they reclaim him they recreate him into something friendly and kind and approachable and it just it strikes me that both of these films, for children's films, have a lot of darkness, have a lot for children to take in in terms of losing parental figures and facing some really scary, really horrible things on their own. So it's interesting to me that at the end of both of these films, they kind of back off the idea of pure villainy, of pure evil as a concept in the world. And they kind of say... Evil is just another side of good, another aspect of good, another part of good. And you kind of need the whole thing uh, to to have a functional whole and nothing is so dark that it can't be reclaimed by the light.
1: I think that's really interesting, and it seems like they're kind of coming at the same thing from different watered-down versions of other sources. I, I'm, From what I understand, my research doesn't go much deeper than Wikipedia, though it certainly sounds like something that would be worth investigating is is that Henson was influenced by the Seth material, which is sort of this New Age object of fascination where this woman was sort of transcribing these voices from beyond, channeling the voices from beyond, uh, Again, not my area of expertise, but I think some of the ideas of, of uh, good and evil were, were filtered through that. With this, it seems like it's it's kind of a, a watered-down version of sort of, you know, the yin and yang, the, the sort of balance in, in, in the universe that comes from Eastern philosophy. But it is – this is not a traditional – as you say, a traditional good versus evil story ultimately in the end. It plays out much as like a good versus evil story they both do, but in the end, it becomes something different.
2: I don't have much add other than agreeing with your overall observation about the villains here, but I, it did make me think about how the two films use kind of uh, secondary antagonists. I, I think maybe when you do have a villain that represents kind of a bigger idea, you need to have sort of uh, your your troops on the ground that just kind of <laughs> represent like the manifestation of the evil side of that you know your your stormtroopers if we're talking you know you know we can bring this back to star wars and the, what the light and the dark what can't you bring back to star wars <laughs> right exactly <laughs> which draws on much of the same mythology we're probably seeing in uh the dark crystal and kubo I thought, honestly, the secondary antagonists in both of these films were kind of more interesting, or at least I had a greater emotional response to them. I thought Rooney Mara's performance as the the sisters in Kubo was really chilling, and just mm-hmm. kind of the design of those characters too. I thought I thought the sisters were much more intriguing and, frankly, scary than the uh, the Moon King in his various forms. And similarly, I, I think I've I've already expressed my distaste for the the Gartham in Dark Crystal and just how dang creepy they are.
1: Bugs that can break through walls? Right.
2: (laughs) Apparently. This bothers you? Okay, I I don't want to harp on
0: the Brian Froud commentary, but one of the things I learned from the Brian Froud commentary, you can actually see when they're waving those big clumsy claws around that they have metal edges, and they put metal edges on them so they could actually destroy things, (laughs) so they would be hard and and heavy, because when they break into Agra's home, like the first thing one of them Mm, does is bring down one of those claws and a table full of pottery, and the pot shatter and scatter and the table breaks. So they had these actual like heavy edged corners on them and fraud was like
2: when those things come on the set you needed to get out of the way cuz they were actually physically dangerous. Wow. And kind of, you know, speaking of totally creepy, I thought the underwater eyes in Kubo were very frightening and I guess not necessarily a villain per se. They're more kind of like in the siren role. I think you'd classify them, but still, that was probably the the flat out scariest, unsettling sequence to me. Yeah, they're the more combination of the eyes and evil. Yeah, the combination of like the eyes below the water while the sisters are are battling monkey above. It's that that was the moment in the film where I think I felt like most caught up and emotionally invested in what scene. was happening. Yeah,
0: the eyeballs didn't do it for me because they seemed so arbitrary like they're, they're the characters are on the ship and I believe Monkey just kind of says oh and by the way there's the garden of evil eyes that does the evil thing and I was like wait what where did that come from and it's a weird contrast to I mean I, I do think that sequence with uh, Monkey fighting the sister is one of the most technically adept and complicated sequences in the film and just like one of the most uh, breathtaking and absorbing I I mean I thought that fight was spectacular
1: I think it established early on that there was real danger here. Characters could get killed and people that you know, Kubo has experienced horrible loss and he might experience more.
0: Yeah, the sisters, I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, th- I think the sisters are scarier than the grandfather, although part of the reason for that is that the grandfather is meant to, uh, you know, they're just kind of like hard-hitting, scary things. He represents the the seduction of, of giving up, of total loss. And he's kind in a strange sort of way because he's trying to seduce Kubo over to his side. You know, he's the emperor, the sisters are Darth Vader, right. and they represent different mm. kinds loss and destruction by the way i just brought it back to star wars (laughs) so but yeah it's a really good point that the uh the secondary villains are kind of necessary in both cases to keep up the tension level so speaking of star wars and kind of the (laughs) mythology that underwrites all of these stories uh keith you're going to talk about mythology
1: Uh, one thing i liked about both of these is they didn't oversell the mythology i think in some ways with the dark crystal it was kind of a flaw in some ways, where I, I was left wondering exactly what was going on with this world. We do have that narration kind of setting things up, but I'm glad we don't have an endless opening crawl. You know, eons ago, uh, <laughs> the, the, there were nine races, and then you know, <laughs> s- the seven of them fled to the hinterlands or whatever. You know, we it's, it's the
0: George R. R. Martin version,
1: right? It's a, I mean, it's very simple, but Kubo did it a little better, which which is, it, it kind of just dropped you in the middle and let you catch up. It literally drops you in the middle with Kubo and his mother fleeing, and then you find out later why they're fleeing and who they're fleeing from and what the stakes are. That, to me, worked. I, I did not mind doing the work to catch up, and by the end, I felt like I had a fully formed picture. I, what would have bothered me is if they really tried to lay out the mechanics of this universe. But, you know, kid, evil grandfather, monkey protector, I, I, can, I can handle that. I don't I don't really need to have it you know explained to me nine different ways.
0: Yeah, There is, as I say, the Garden of Eyes to me felt arbitrary and it's kind of hard to pin down why that is since so much about the story is arbitrary in the manner of a fairy tale you know fairy tales have fairy tale logic in which oh you know this woman was transformed into a bear and you know this man is also a pie like whatever <laughs> what matters is the metaphor even if there isn't a, a naked obvious realism logic to it so of course it makes sense that his grandfather is a dragon in the moon that's just it's a representation of his his dist- And his inapproachability and his power. Like, that's just something that you're meant to accept. And I accepted most of these things. But occasionally, the, the big reveal at the end about who Monkey and Beetle are was another thing that just didn't quite connect with me that didn't quite work for me, because it seemed very arbitrary.
1: Mm, I'm disappointed. I
2: thought in, it seemed in, very obvious, much like the shard. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that worked. Beena, Beena,
2: and Monkey are the shard of uh,
1: that worked for me in in, in a big way, I, I, and I was, it was obvious. But but less for of the their slow realization uh, to each other of who they were. Yeah. was was kind of beautifully done. I yeah,
2: know. no, I I mostly like that. I, I I think I have a problem more with where the revelation fell in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that again, I think, kind of took away from its ultimate emotional impact, but. Kind of going back to the topic, I want to pose this question to you guys because I'm not sure that I have an answer. But, you know, Dark Crystal takes place on an alien world that is very obviously nothing like ours, where Kubo takes place in kind of a magical version of ancient Japan. I don't think we can really, like, peg feudal, a feudal, feudal Japan, feudal yeah. Japan it's, yet. It's deliberately not meant to be yeah. peggable to a specific yes. time. But, but, it, but it is still a human world. So I wonder if that has any effect on how we process the the mythology of each of these stories i think it's
1: a fantasy world versus a folklore Mm. world I, i think one is more distantly connected to to the world we know than than the other but i think we kind of understand them on their own terms
0: yeah, and I think that really kind of sums it up. I mean, Kubo has come in for some criticism for the fact that it's a story that takes place in Japan that only has mm-hmm. a couple of Japanese actors in and very, very, very minor roles in a way that kind of seems sort of arbitrary and like, oh, we're going to kind of throw a sop to that audience by bringing in George Takei for – two lines yeah so that that is an awkwardness that you don't have to worry about when your characters are uh, gelflings and gartham mm. you know who's voicing them and what what the racial or political or like real world dynamics are so in that
2: sense there's kind of an issue
1: but- no, no more gelfling face let's not, let's not, let's not do that anymore
2: <laughs> it's just really static and un- <laughs> you just kind of put silly putty over your face and don't
1: move. And kind of build <laughs> yourself out a muzzle Genevieve, yeah. that's offensive <laughs>
0: Is it? I can't tell anymore. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think we've been explained enough about the mythology to decide
2: whether it's offensive
0: or not. Um, final thoughts on these two movies?
2: I like them both. I, I feel like we maybe appeared more critical than we are on both of these films because they both come like so close to something. It, and speaking for myself, they both come so close to something that I absolutely love that I focus more on the flaws because it, it takes away from something I'm so close to loving. But I mean... These are both really great films, both in in terms of craft and just experiencing them and seeing what cinema can be in different forms.
1: It was great to be as a Dark Crystal*. I had not seen it in years, and, and I have a lot of a lot of respect for it. I guess this is the way to you know. It's, it's hard to feel too much affection for it, but I did really enjoy watching it it was it was gorgeous and kubo i just love I mean, it worked for me on every possible way i mean, just t- as a technical accomplishment as a piece of storytelling as, a, as an emotional experience i was i was into kubo
2: did hannah see it
1: yeah she liked it too
0: i had somebody ask me if it was safe for her three-year-old and i'm like i don't know
1: between three and five um, I and, I, and I cannot sit here and tell you that she understood the finer points of the story but you know. I'm
0: sure I didn't understand oh Genevieve was talking about not understanding the finer points of Dark Crystal the first time she said <laughs> no it. I no uh, really uh, Kubo yeah yeah but I think that's really
2: common right. for a kid to see a movie and uh, you know you get the fine points the later. images stick with you no, right? I think, and I think the images of Kubo will definitely stick with her
1: yeah I think that's fine you, you, you throw them in the deep end and they learn how to swim I think
0: yeah or they you know drown in the heady heady mythology of, uh, <laughs> of these films I, I'm with you i mean even if there are things i don't appreciate enough about these films or wish that i appreciated more i'm so glad that both of these films were made Mm, you know they're just they're both such documents of individual creators trying to do something radically different and i want there to be more people in the world like keith who appreciate these films well appreciate I want I want people to appreciate both films the way Keith appreciates Kubo. I want these films to find the the passionate audience that the passionate filmmakers deserve, I suppose. But for now I'm just really glad they're out there. Kubo's not making all that much money in theaters, but I'm kinda hoping it pulls a dark crystal. Dark Crystal, also disappointed in theaters and it's become a timeless classic that's been around forever. hoping the same thing happens with Kubo. The Dark Crystal is available on DVD and Blu-ray and via the usual streaming services. Kubo and the Two Strings should still be in theaters. We'd like you to go support it there. Um, You really kind of have to see these puppets on the biggest possible screen to appreciate how much detail like it can fit into something so small. And as Keith points out, the 3D is really pretty spectacular. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put something interesting on your radar. Uh, Keith, you want to kick us off?
1: Yeah, it's kind of an obvious choice that that some of our, our old dissolve readers will remember. But I I had a chance to revisit uh, once again the world of the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across <laughs> the Eighth Dimension because it came out on Blu-ray and it is such a it's a delightfully odd odd film and one that lends itself to repeat viewings. I, I was I was trying to think what it would take to get this movie made today, and the answer is is <laughs> it would never get made today. It, it would happen on YouTube. Yeah, it might happen on YouTube for for like a. a two thousand dollar budget with people you've never heard of just you know here's this this character you've never heard of who's a neurosurgeon and an explorer and and uh, a rock star all Mm -hmm. at the same time um and fighting uh, aliens from another dimension but looking at it again what sells it uh in the midst of all this sort of crazy concepts and way over the top wonderfully over the top acting from from john lithgow and christopher lloyd and such as as the bad guys is Weller is so deadpan. He's just so mm-hmm. beautifully understated. He reminded me of kind of like Adam West in the old Batman show. You know, it's, it's uh anyway, it's a crazy film that definitely deserves another chance. Yet another chance. Yet another failed chance. the box office, found a, found a cult on home video. And I, I hope that that keeps going across the decades.
0: And are you holding out for Buckaroo Bonsai versus the World Crime League?
1: He's still fighting the World Crime League in our hearts. So.
0: <laughs> That's good. Cause the World Crime League has been leaving a lot of cholesterol in my heart. I've actually got three things, which I know makes Genevieve groan. I will try to be brief. One is an article called How the Father of Claymation Lost His Company. Uh, You can find it at Priceonomics.com or just search for that title. And it is the story of Will Vinton Studios, which became Leica. Um, and it is a fascinating backstory that will tell you a lot about where Claymation came from and where it went as a commercial endeavor, um, where Leica came from and where it is now. And given just how much press there is out there that's positive about Travis Knight and about Leica, it's really interesting to read a story that portrays him and his dad, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, who was instrumental in making Leica Studios happen and maybe instrumental in keeping it going if it keeps having financial uh non-successes it kind of portrays them as villains who came in and drove Will Vinton off of his own hard-earned company. I mean, this article portrays Vinton as essentially the Travis Knight of his day and kind of portrays the knights as opportunists uh, who threw some money at him and then fired him. So it's a fascinating story. Um, It's really well-researched. It's really well-told. And it provides a lot of detail that I have not read anywhere else. How the father of claymation lost his company. It's a really interesting story. Um, Imagination Illustrated, the Jim Henson Journal, is a... A book I read years ago and went back to uh, look at a lot of the timeline stuff about how Dark Crystal was made. It is a really fascinating book that was essentially culled and curated from Jim Henson's own journals. He kept really really fine, finely detailed notes about what he did and when in terms of both stuff he did with a family and stuff he did professionally. And the curators kind of pulled that information together, use his notes like in his own words about all of these different projects he was working on over the course of decades, and then pull in so much archival material in terms of photographs and uh, like backstory stuff, uh, notes, sketches, uh, just, I mean, every archival bit you can imagine Imagine assembled into what amounts to a sort of scrapbook of his career. Um, it's really fascinating. There's only a few pages in it about Dark Crystal because it's kind of an overview of his career. Um, so there's not a whole lot of depth there in terms of that. But in terms of kind of understanding the entirety of what he did, not just the big highlights, the big projects, um, but all of the, these fascinating little byways and sideways. It's a really, really great book. Finally, I finally made time to catch up. Speaking of stop motion animation and really odd movies that you're glad somebody made, I finally caught up on The Little Prince, which mm. is streaming for free on Netflix right now.
2: Yeah, I've, I've heard very mixed things about this. Curious where, where you fell on it.
0: I really liked it. Mm. It is a strange movie especially in terms of kind of the messages it's trying to bring across, but given the source material, it was always going to be a kind of strange movie with some strange messages to bring across, and it is not what I was expecting at all. There's kind of a frame story about a little girl whose mother is fanatically obsessed with her getting into the best school, and her being like a hard-working little business tyke at like, I don't know, age seven or so. And she's completely caught up in this dream that her mother has for her until she meets the aviator next door, played by Jeff Bridges, who tells her the story of the little prince. And the little prince's stories are handled in just this exquisite stop motion. Very, very simply done, but incredibly beautiful. The transitional sequences where he's storytelling are handed in, handled in a paper craft animation. And then the frame story is what's become like the default right now CGI. So it's three different methods of animation all used to tell a story within a story. And a little bit of uh, framework around that that's sort of the s- story of telling a story. It's actually fairly complicated, but it comes across as as so simple to watch. It's not like anything else out there right now. It's free if you already have Netflix, so I highly recommend that movie.
1: If we're doing like an SAT equivalence exam, uh, you are to Kubo as I am to Little Prince. I'm really glad it it found a home after after being yanked from a theatrical release in North America at the last minute. And there's things about it I love. I love the stop-motion stuff. I love... (sighs) The harshest thing I can say is I love the 20 minutes of it that are actually spent adapting The Little Prince. Mm-hmm. The framing device I could I uh, is okay. Uh, the last third where she kind of immerses herself into the world of The Little Prince and everything's repeated, uh, it felt like a little. Like the end of every Pixar movie ever um but it's it's worth seeing for sure it's it's I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad it makes people I'm glad it made you as happy as it made you, Tasha mm-hmm.
0: Well, we all like being happy. Genevieve <laughs> what's making you happy these days?
2: What's making me happy is that you called me out for hating when you do three picks, and I came here with three picks Yay! much much like you two people brought
1: more than one
2: <laughs> well. I have two pieces of kind of supplementary reading, but not actually reading, and then uh, one actual film. So I'm kind of covering all my bases here. But uh, like Tasha, I wanted to point out a couple of things from different media that relate to what we talked about today. Uh, the first one is an episode of the sci-fi television program, Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge, which um, if you haven't uh, seen it, I would recommend seeking out. It's, it's a really fun kind of reality competition in the vein of Face Off. And that's just like creative people being creative and. Kind of enjoying that fact, and uh, Brian Henson is the uh, kind of the head judge and mentor on it, but I specifically wanted to call out the season one episode two episode called Return of the Skexies, which as you can probably guess uh, the challenge involves all the contestants making their own skexies and uh, it's just really great to, for kind of seeing how these creations work and seeing kind of new original takes on them uh, Cursory Google Search brought uh, that exact episode up on Vimeo, so you should be able to watch it there. I think Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge is probably on some on-demand cable services, but had trouble narrowing down the exact one.
0: Can we stop podcasting right now so I can watch this?
2: <laughs> you, should, you should watch all of Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge, Tasha. It's great. Um, The second one is uh, much more tangentially uh, related to Kubo, but uh, when I was watching Kubo in the theater with my boyfriend, both of us at one point during kind of the Moon King segment leaned over to each other and went, this is just like Journey. And for those of you who don't know, Journey is a 2012 video game that shares kind of a lot of aesthetics with Kubo. It's really just kind of a great Uh, journey uh, as as the name would imply of of a video game where you're kind of dropped into the middle of this desolate barren landscape and there's no dialogue no real language anywhere in this game and you just kind of wander this landscape that gradually becomes more complex and more beautiful and there's like kind of a eastern inspired design aesthetic to it but it's just kind of very alien and unusual and uh it's a very beautiful experience with kind of a very abstract overarching story so it's something you can just kind of like dip into and dip out of when you need a little dose of pretty so yeah journey it's a it's a fun game and i say that as someone who is not a a huge gamer so finally i want to recommend a film that has been recommended on this podcast two times already and i said i would eventually come back here and recommend it and that movie is wiener the uh 2016 documentary following anthony wiener through his attempt to <laughs> recapture uh, his political career following a, a sexting scandal. And then he is uh, dropped in the middle of another sef- sexting scandal in the middle of his mayoral run. I specifically watched this movie today because the news came out uh, yesterday about a third Anthony Weiner sexting scandal and subsequent separation from his wife, Huma Abedin, who plays a really kind of interesting semi-backgrounded role in Wiener. But because of this news, I found myself watching the documentary specifically with her in mind and kind of watching her as the the main character. And it's really interesting to view through that lens. And it's just as has been said by both Tasha and Scott, a hugely entertaining documentary. And is now available to rent on demand, whereas before it was just in theaters and available for purchase. And it was just announced that Showtime will premiere it uh, on TV in October. So more and more ways for you to watch Wiener. So you can, uh, <laughs> if you're like me, you know, and had to eventually bow to the pressure of your podcast co-hosts, uh, there are now more ways than ever. You can do that. Keith, have you seen Wiener?
1: I still haven't. So I will probably take this recommendation to heart, go home and watch it. And in two weeks, recommend <laughs> the film Wiener. And that's it for this episode the next picture Wiener.
0: And um, please. The next Wiener show.
1: The next Wiener show. Yes. Perfect.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I was going to specifically suggest uh, watching it and then coming back to recommend it. Perhaps if you wait until October and watch it, there will be a fourth Anthony Weiner sexting scandal. <laughs> it's a really good movie. Um, it will really shed some interesting light on what's on the news that broke uh, yesterday about the third scandal. It Also, that film humanizes him in a way that's so much more interesting than the dumb jokes everybody is uh, making right now. And I understand where those jokes are coming from. I understand where the impulse is, but having seen that film, I just see him in such a different light.
2: Again, like I said, I was kind of viewing it through the lens of his wife, Huma. And I think I, maybe it's just because I like went into this with the expectation that it did humanize him. Cause that's something both you and Scott pointed out. I find I kind of came out of it like, Thinking he was a different sort of cad, uh, and, the, and the movie kind of, despite itself, said some interesting things about the different way women and men have to navigate politics. And I thought it was particularly interesting that how many women surround Weiner throughout the movie, both in his campaign and and his wife and his supporters and the women he was sexting with. And the movie kind of again and again comes back to. How these women uh, react to and reflect the things he's done, and how it, that is different from the way he reacts to them himself. So, all of us
0: except Keith recommend you see Weiner and write us a letter recommending Weiner. And we just <laughs> generally—I
1: I, I might recommend it. If I haven't seen it yet.
0: <laughs> no, no, patch on you. I'm just—I don't want to. I don't want to lump you in under like ten out of ten dentists recommend Weiner. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, it took you this long to start mishearing like what we were saying as a bunch of wiener I get wiener it jokes? like wiener. <laughs> you know what else I don't recommend? Sausage party. I was
2: just going to say. Don't see that. It's a good thing that.
0: we didn't cover sausage party. See wiener instead. And see everything else we've recommended on your next picture show this week. That was a lot of suggestions. And thank you guys both for participating. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Scott and I will both be at the Toronto Film Festival when taping happens for those episodes, and you can't prop up a table that only has two legs, so we're going to take a little time off and come back strong after the festival. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Kubo and the Two Strings and The Dark Crystal, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 Two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith?
1: You can find me at uprocks.com, where I'm editorial director of film and television, and you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS three thousand.
2: Genevieve. You can find me at Vox.com, where I am working with the culture team over there covering film, TV, books, and all sorts of other such items. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky.
0: You can find me at TheVerge.com, where I'm the resident film critic. You can find my piece on behind the scenes at Leica and all of the impressive, impressive things that I connected with there, uh, more so than I connected with the film. You can also find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. No space. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at at NextPicturePod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance in producing the show and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.
1: Look at you all. See the love there that's sleeping. While my guitar jam-